Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow, together with other mothers, when autumn comes. I really love how this podcast shows people who the mamas are behind the medical mom title. Today you are going to meet Aubrey. Aubrey is a mom who I don't know if most people want this title, but I call myself this. I am a hospital mom. I spend a lot of time at the hospital doing appointments, doing ICU stays, doing things like that. But Aubrey, she spends a lot of time going back and forth between multiple hospitals to give her children, specifically her son, the specific care he needs as they are learning more about his disease. Today, Aubrey's going to talk about what being a hospital mom means. You'll hear how many days this family has spent inpatient in a very short amount of time. And you're going to hear about how, how you can help hospital moms. Because guys, let me tell you, it is not easy. It is not easy at all to be a hospital mom. I always thought I was going to be a soccer mom or something. Totally a hospital mom. So let's do this. Well, welcome, Aubrey, to When Autumn Comes. We are very excited to have you here today to talk about your family. Thank you. You have a very unique situation, um, and you, your kids are, you have twins, and then you have Jackson. Tell, tell us about your family. So I have um, twin seven, almost eight-year-old girls. They are very um, adamant about reminding me that they will be eight soon. <laughs> so um, that half matters. But um, I have my twin girls, Adeline and Claire, and then I have Jackson. He's five, going on six. Um, life is crazy around here. I have um, one of my twins, the oldest Adeline, has a feeding tube and has some medical complexities of her own. Um, a lot of gastric issues that we've come into recently and um, some immune uh, difficulties over the years that have developed. Honestly, I learned more about her from having Jackson. Um, Her twin has autism. So we've dealt with that since she was um, two and a half, three. So we do a lot of sensory processing therapy and stuff for her. And Jackson is my most medically complex. He, um, he is a little spitfire. So, <laughs> um, I mean, his, his story has progressed over the years from GI issues. Um, he began with an airway defect when he was two months old. He had surgery. 
Um, and it just progressed into a whirlwind of what it is today. There's multiple systems involved. He does have um, secondary mitochondrial disease with a primary autoimmune dysfunction. Um, they're still trying to figure him out, but we have, he's reliant on um, TPN, which is total parenteral nutrition. So he has a pick line. Well, it's not a pick line anymore, but he has a IV catheter in his chest that delivers him nutrition. He's been on that for four years. We've got a feeding tube and ileostomy, which is pretty much a bag that helps, um, you know, empty the contents of his GI tract. Um, we've got endocrinology involved. We've got severe hypoglycemic issues. Um, I'm pretty much the only people that we don't see is cardiology, which I'm thankful for, you know, that the heart is okay. So we just kind of go through the motions and his primary doctor is a bone marrow transplant doctor up in Cincinnati Children's now. And so, you were located local to me. You're in Virginia. And, I am, yes. And you guys get, you are all over the place. But before we get into that, can you tell us, like, you have to describe Jackson's personality, please, because he <laughs> is, I mean, all of your children are adorable, but Jackson just has this, like, flair to him. So his, uh, I think it was his nurse or something one day that said we should do drama for my child. His newest thing is acting out anything. He's got an imagination beyond words. Um, And he has to do for school. So it really started with school where he had to do, um, he's got a lot of adaptations because typing and things like that are hard. Writing is hard for him. So he's allowed to verbally explain his answers and he will just animate these books and he'll read the book and then he'll just give these big um, ideas about the book and his hands are involved and his facial expressions are involved. And he, um, he watches a lot of YouTube, no lie. So he will actually at the end of some of his videos say like, and subscribe for more. So um, <laughs> naturally he absolutely loves, yes, he absolutely loves to animate um, things and create these elaborate stories. He creates these Lego people. We recently got him um, little tackle boxes. My OCD was happy because he could place all his little Lego people in a box and create his own Lego people in his own worlds. And um, we're really excited because we just got him an iPad where he can actually put it on a stand and record his own videos. And we make him a YouTube channel, but um, dancing and singing, this kid just, he's, yeah, he's animated and he's fun and he'll, He'll give you a run for your money too when he's feeling good. So, so when, sounds like a really bright light. He, yes, yes. When he's not feeling well too, does he still like as a mom whose kids are pretty flat? Like, I mean, I can read my kids, but um, a lot of people cannot. For you, when he's not feeling well, like, do you see a total one eighty in his personality, or is he still on? So you see, it goes two ways for him. Um, luckily, so he actually didn't start talking until age two. Um, and then even just looking back at where he was a few years ago, he's really kind of progressed with all the intense therapies. And now he can finally start to verbalize. Um, he's been working with pain and palliative to find words for things. Mm -hmm. So he's gotten a lot better about like when his legs were hurting, he said it felt like there were rocks in his legs, you know, and things like that. So I can associate it. Um, so he either kind of flattens out and just finds a place on the couch and starts to either, you know, cry or kind of fall asleep or he'll get extremely hyper. 
to the point where he's kind of manic and his body can't control itself. That's what so, Lorelai does. That's what we're struggling with, Lorelai. It's like a manicness. It's crazy. It is. It is. And um, the last few days, yesterday, actually, he did it in therapy and they had to put him in like a body sock to try and help like reduce his stimulation because you can tell and and it's it's the body misfiring honestly yeah. we're trying to get his dysautonomic symptoms under control so but lately it's been more of the manic where he just can't, physically cannot handle himself and i'm mm-hmm. like okay you need to i have to separate him from you know his sisters and just quiet room let's stop you know and his is either running to the point where he can't breathe or he'll squeal and just you know mm-hmm. so it goes either way. And it's hard because like with Lorelai, she's pretty chill all the time. And she's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty flat. I hate using that word because she's not, but to the outsider, she's flat. Today, she is happy as a clam. She is like talking and squawking. And like if she could tell jokes, she'd be cracking jokes right now. Aww. And it's adorable. But you know, it's the start of the manic. Because she's like super, super happy. And so my mom's downstairs going like, she's having such a great day. And I'm like, I know it's coming. I I, I can see this coming. Like she's mm-hmm. happy and you want to be happy with her. But when she's that frantically happy, it's just like, you you know what's coming. Do you medicate her now? <laughs> like, uh, Well, and it's true. It's true. You know, we just got something to try and help calm that down too. But you'll see him do the same thing where there's like a level of they're happy where you're like, okay, this is just a happy boy or he'll be excited. But when he gets so manic, um, he almost can't like yesterday in therapy, they described it as he can't, he can't even control himself. And he pushes his body to the point where he tips over because he's got pure and oxygen and stuff for when he gets out of breath, but the child could walk across the room and get out of breath. And this is like heaving and almost about to vomit because he's so hyper. And I'm like, Hey, you know, and they don't know how to self-regulate themselves. So yeah, we've really been trying to work on that. Where on the spectrum is your daughter that suffers from autism? So she's high functioning. Um, her biggest, she has um, high functioning autism with um, anxiety and sensory processing disorder. So she, we, she is medicated before that um, we really had social difficulty was our biggest thing and emotional dysregulation. And I wonder too, sometimes he sees some of her behaviors and I'm sure there's some learned behavior there too, because her typical response to things, if she is not able to process the overstimulation, she'll just throw herself on the floor and have, you know, a tantrum or, um, she, she stopped the self-harming behavior. So we're a little bit better with that. Um, but a lot of the times we have to remove her from the situation and kind of let her calm down, especially if something in her world is not the way she wants it to be. Because if something is off or her routine is off, it's a complete, you know, meltdown. So we are high functioning, but we still have a lot of, um, the way they explained it is her verbal and nonverbal abilities are starkly different. So she still is not able to verbalize how she's feeling because her emotional, I mean, her emotions are down here, you know, that of a four or five year old, but her intellect is above her age. So I mean, if for anybody, that would be hard if you're not able to verbalize what you're feeling. So, right. So here you are as a mom sitting in your house, you have one child that's dealing with like severe medical issues that you're, you know, he's going through. I don't know if you refer to as storming or his body is like manic and you're trying to manage that. And that alone, I feel like if it were me would be really hard to handle. 
And then over here, you have another child. So what do you do with all the like high flying um, emotions that are going on in your house? And like, how do you handle it? Like, what are your practices of (laughs) take a deep breath, walk away? Like, what do you do? How do you get through that on the daily or when it's unexpected? A husband who works from home. I will be completely honest. Um, my husband, Ryan, works from home. Um, he's able to step away. And I'm really thankful for that because he's able to come and intervene or help, you know, get the girls ready for school. I will say it's been a lot harder because I've seen my my daughter who has ASD. I've seen this isolation um, and this this schooling from home turn her into even a more socially isolated child. So where she used to love going to gymnastics, she doesn't want to anymore. She doesn't want to go do things outside. Um, So the hardest part for me has been seeing that with her and figuring out how to, how to give her the help she needs, but also address the medical side because she's also been left out a lot. I hate to say it that way because she doesn't have the feeding tube and she doesn't have that. Like, I mean, exactly. she's the only one without medical equipment. Yeah. And that's been a lure for her to try and gain the attention that's negative. So, um, a lot of just, a lot of it's, I do ignore the behaviors when it's not, when it's not self-harming, I do ignore the behaviors. Um, and also trying to find time to separate her and give her like the attention that she needs just for her praise so that she's not seeking praise. Like you said, Suze, for the, for the medical things. Cause she did go through a phase. My stomach hurts. This hurts. And at one time I remember I, she kept saying, mommy, I am going to the bathroom all the time. I, I didn't, I just kind of blew it off and the poor kid had a raging UTI, oh. you know, and it, but I didn't know what to do or where to yeah. go with that. So I rely heavily on my husband and I do, um, I do just step away if it's safe for them, because I know that they are in a safe environment. I'll just, I'll put one in one room, I'll put one in the other and just pull away. So. And how do the girls handle Jackson's longer hospital stays? Because I mean, Jackson for, I mean, obviously I know more about your story than our listeners, but Jackson, how much was he, tell us how many days you were in the hospital last year. 124 days between September and March of, um, from 2020 to 2021. So um, typically because of his, I mean, obviously he has a like plethora of medical complexities, but is he usually hospitalized because of his autoimmune where he, or did you say it was autoimmune or did you say it was, um, so it is autoimmune. Um, he's got something they're they've, they're calling it macrophage activation syndrome. So, Essentially, you think about the white blood cells, um, the macrophages in your body, they're supposed to be the good white blood cells, they're supposed to, you know, help. Um, But what happens with him is they overreact to everything. So in his liver, anytime he was fed, they would overreact and they would attack the food as if it was a foreign body. So therefore, his body would almost go into shock when he was fed. Um, they, They do it all throughout his body. So his was these four particular um stays were for line infections. So his gut translocated bacteria, you and I have, you know, bacteria in our gut and we can fight it off. I mean, they say there's good and bad bacteria. His was not, um, the bacteria was not, he was not able to fight it off because of his autoimmune and his, he's on immunosuppressants and it translocated into his bloodstream. So the problem with that is anytime that we face these infections, I mean, it's three plus weeks because you have to clear the infection. You have to 
Um, every time they replace the central line in his chest, you have to do, there was always other things that would come up. This would come up or we'd have to treat this symptom. So I want to point out that you're not just doing 125 days at the hospital at home. Like you are airlifting Mm -hmm. him nine hours from home and you're relocating up there. I mean, because that hospital has more, um, more practices, more doctors that can help him further. Um, Mm -hmm. But your girls are at home. Your family is at home. Your support is at home. And you are having to go far, far away. Like this can't be easy. It's not. um, Because before this, he, he would have like scheduled stays, you know, or we would have, we would have the small scares, um, but this one, this one really brought to light kind of the degeneration, I guess you'd say, in the disease. Um, and, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many conversations we had where his bone marrow transplant doctor walked in and was like, this is just, his body's just not fighting these anymore. We don't know how much this, you know, is, if he's going to keep doing this. Um, and each infection, too, kept, it went from an infection that was noticeable to an infection that was noticeable to me pushing his very last one, something was wrong. And I had to, I had to physically say to her, you need to do a, you need to do a line culture on my child. And he came back positive. I remember her calling me at 8 PM when we were already up there for a trip. Cause you make a good point in between all of this, we already had scheduled trips. Mm-hmm. So we would stay for three weeks and then we would have another week where we would have to see people, you know, and, and finish our specialties. So I am very thankful to have my in-laws. They kept my girls a lot of that time but we did really realize the um, how hard it was on the girls and how how much they miss their parents. Because for me, it's not a really good coping mechanism, honestly. But I, I would call them, but I wouldn't call them as often as I should because for me, it broke me down more. Mm. Um, Dad was really good about calling them every day and stuff like that. But my head was just fully in with Jackson. And by no means, it, it didn't mean that I didn't think about my girls every day, but Um, I knew they were in good hands. They had grandma and grandpa there. Um, Luckily, they have their own room. They had their own schedule. So, you know, grandma and grandpa are really good about doing that. But the last admission, we really realized how hard it was on them because Adeline came home and I didn't realize how much weight Adeline had lost. And then that went into a spiral of she's really getting worse. And she ended up in the hospital for 12 days for a feeding tube placement. So now we actually, we got an apartment up there now. So anytime Jackson is going to be admitted or anytime we go up there, my husband just brings the girls up there and we, you know, try to function um, as a family, but they're going back to school in September. So it's really going to be a hard, we may have to turn back into this, you know, leaving them with grandma and seeing how things go because he has to go up there monthly. He gets IVIG and has to see his bone marrow transplant doctor monthly. And because of how many allergic reactions he has and all these kind of things, she just doesn't feel safe doing some of this stuff at home. And honestly, it's my safety net too, to see her every month and see his palliative doctor every month. So I am living in constant fight or flight and I don't feel like I would ever feel settled if I were you back and forth. Like, how do you feel? Do you feel settled? Do you feel like you're constantly between the emotions of the fight and flight and being a nomad, basically? (laughs) Um, So, and see, we've weighed the pros and cons because you look at, do we move up there? Do we stay here? 
But if you, if you, I move up there, I don't have any support with family. The access Virginia versus Ohio, as far as Medicaid access and palliative access and some other things that we have here, you know, we really had to look at what was best for Jackson because I want to feel settled, but I feel like if we went up there too, I, I still wouldn't feel settled because my whole life is here. So now that we have the apartment, I do feel better about it. We're spending less money. It's really weird to say, but it's cheaper to have an apartment than to pay for a hotel every month. I feel like now that when we go up there, I have a lot of his medical supplies up there. I don't have to pack as much. So that has made it a lot more settling in my soul as far as we have like another place. The kids have their own beds. They have toys. And I'm not living out of somebody else's room or something. So that has been a big turning point for me emotionally as far as feeling more settled. But I still kind of know financially it's a lot. You know, it's a big... um And I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop to either when can we not sustain this anymore? When will he get to the point that I need to be up there? Because I've, I've been scared on these air flights before where Jackson is critical. One of them, he got there and within 12 hours went critical, all of his counts tanked and he just got really, really sick. Um, But what if we were still, what if we were mid flight, you know, or what are, so all of that's in my brain. Um, can I can I interrupt you for one second? Absolutely. You, mm-hmm. you keep saying transplant, and I thought I heard you say bone marrow transplant. If yes, you ma'am. find that that's this is what he suffers from, is that an option for treatment, or where does that so, come into play? There's that's that's a big piece. So he is under bone marrow transplant. He's considered pre-transplant, and right now for Jackson, it's not an option because we're not a hundred percent sure that that will help fix the problem. Um, we're kind of, we're kind of in the phase where we're watching and seeing if he ever gets to that point. But also I've had a lot of talks with this palliative doctor. And even if we were to get to a point with transplant, um, there's so many risks, so many risks involved with bone marrow transplant. And I would really want to know that this is going to fix the disease. Um, so again, we're watching, we're kind of watching and waiting in the background because, this, this disease isn't something where we can say this is the treatment for it. It was more of a, let's see if a bone marrow transplant could work. And his doctor doesn't feel it's a safe option right now until we kind of know how everything else in the cohort of kids is going, if that makes sense without kind of going into yeah. the, the details of the other child. Cause I, you know, yeah. right. So. And he has secondary mitochondrial disease, which I don't know if I, know fully what that is, but I'm, can I, can I assume that this is a progressive disease that he has this autoimmune disorder that really, cause does that affect him the most? It does. It does. So we originally were um, thinking that Jackson had, so he has complex one and four deficiency. We were originally thinking that his mitochondrial damage was from the primary mitochondrial disease um, because he presented that way, he's got multiple organs involved. You know, there's, um, we've been back and forth with mitochondrial medicine up at CHOP quite a few times. Um, so pretty much what it was found is this autoimmune disease has damaged his mitochondrial cells along the way. So when you look at secondary mitochondrial disease, you've got, there is damage to the mitochondrial cells, but there's not going to be progressive damage to the mitochondria as there would be in a primary mitochondriopathy. So his is this autoimmune has attacked that part of his cell. 
and the damage is done. So kind of where we sit, could the primary disease attack the, the mitochondrial cells further? Absolutely. But um, it is degenerative from what we've seen and um, just kind of the case studies and the things that we're doing. And Jackson, I mean, Jackson has literally progressed as we go. But unfortunately, because it's called macrophage activation syndrome, which is pretty much just this is the closest, even in all of his notes, it says possible or probable because they pretty much called it the closest thing they could medically that they know a name for. Um, we're seeing him degenerate, but we don't know how fast it'll be. We don't know where it's going to go because this is so new okay. and we're really still trying to figure him out. So I kind feel of- like they should be giving us medical, like honorary medical degrees, like each hospital <laughs> or doctor should be like handing out certificates. Do you all agree with me? Know, because 100%. I'm like, like, where is your frame with your, you know, degree behind you? Because that was pretty in-depth description. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think um, when people hear of mitochondrial disease too, the, the secondary portion is even new. When I talk to his mitochondrial doctor, it's even new in research, you know, having this, um, having the differentiation between this, this primary. And I know, you know, Susan, you can speak on that too. Um, having the differentiation between primary and secondary and even the secondary delineation, we see all these changes in him and it may be a primary disease, but they just can't name it yet. Mm-hmm. You know, cause he's got multiple gene mutations. He's got the different complexes that are affected, but she said, I can't say that this isn't just damage from another disease yeah. because he doesn't quite fit. I hear yeah. that a lot. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of interested because we're in the same boat. Well, we're not in the same boat, but like, I, we don't have a definite diagnosis. It's a probable. And so many people ask me, how do you deal with not having a diagnosis? And I know my answer, but what would you say to that? You kind of don't deal with it. <laughs> I mean, you do, but you kind of just take it day at a time because yeah. for me, I finally got to the point where I said, what will it change? Will naming this change anything we're doing? And I've said that to his doctor and she looked at me and said, Aubrey, we're in the symptom management phase. That's all I can do for you. I can't fix it. I can't make this better. If a problem arises, we fix it. And having a name for it, first of all, we would have already had a name if it was something that was known and we could fix. So it's not going to change anything, honestly. That's kind of where I sit. So um, we we did seeking a lot when he was little. I, I saw it and I talked to people and I went here and there. And when we settled on this whole, that's kind of how we ended up in Cincinnati. Well, we went up there for a specialty and then that's how we settled on Cincinnati is because I had a mom friend, which is the initial, you know, child in this cohort. And she said, you need to see this bone marrow transplant doctor. You need to see her. Cause I think she's got some ideas and she's doing her own research. And once she kind of found all this information about Jackson, I kind of stopped and I settled if that makes sense because while there's no name, she's doing what I need her to do. And she's gotten him stable. His palliative doctor here has gotten him stable and we're, managing it as it comes, because I feel like if I keep seeking something, what am I going to change? Nothing. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of tell people, you know, why, why would I keep looking for something that may never come and we're in stress myself out about that? You know, I was going to say, like, I feel like the more I search, I'm just clouding 
myself mm-hmm. and white knuckling and looking for control as opposed to like, this is just what is. And it doesn't mean I'm losing hope, but if I can shift my mindset to with uncertainty comes a world of possibility also. Um, I like that. Yeah. Like I can't, my girlfriend gave me this sign. Um, we should post actually the quote cause it's so good, but it, it essentially was with uncertainty comes possibility. It's everything's uncertain. And you know, if I can shift my mindset to, instead of looking at the scary possibility, look at the opportunity of the possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes it a little easier. I can breathe a little easier. I can day by day, just step forward a little easier as opposed to like waiting for that shoe to drop and being terrified all the time at the what ifs. So I loved that answer that you gave. Let's shift just briefly. Speaking of waiting for the shoe to drop when you're at home and Jackson shows a symptom of anything, do you immediately (laughs) go, okay, let's pack for three months. Or do you go like, how do you, I would have a panic attack myself. Am I packing? Am I, what, what is my kid? Because you know, you and I text at like four o'clock in the morning and we're like, what's yeah. your kid doing? What's my kid doing? Like <laughs> they do whatever the heck they want to do. And, uh, yeah. Pretty much. So, you know, what's interesting about it is before his four line infections, I didn't really do that. So before we found this bone marrow transplant doctor, um, we were literally having to go into the hospital at every sign of a fever. So, and this was kind of when we found there was this autoimmune central nervous system dysregulation. My kid literally lived in the hospital with a fever. I was like, guys, if you want me to come in every time he's 100.4, I'm going to live here. I am going to die here. I think because that was he, the fir- one of the first times I met you. You were like, we're in for a yes. fever. Like, and I was sitting outside of the NICU step down because Benji had been born, I think. Uh-huh. And you like walked yep. past and I was like, hey, I know you. Um, and you're like, yeah, we're in for a fever. And I'm immediately like, no, like get away, get away from me. Um, but I think you were at KD just for a fever. Well, and there was a fever and another fever. And I can't tell you how many times we'd show up. There would be a fever and nothing was found. And that's when we were pretty much told that it was his immune system. I mean, it's dysautonomia. His body overreacts. His blood pressure would go high. He would look septic. Nothing would be wrong. Um, I mean, something was wrong clearly, but you, you get the gist. Um, oh, I get so, it every night at my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but his, his new doctor has really been good about trusting me as a mom. So instead of having to follow this, because, you know, there's protocols, right? There's a tried and true protocol. If you have a central line and you're hundred point four, you go in all the time and you get antibiotics. So my kid was getting antibiotics. My kid was living in the hospital for no reason. So she's been really good about, I'll, t- I'll send her a text. First of all, I can text the woman. It's amazing. You know, and I'll send her Is this text one of your I'll doctors say, in Cincinnati? This is the one in Cincinnati that okay. pretty much took over primary control. And I'll okay. say he has a fever. What do we do? But she's actually given me more control over if I feel like he's septic, then I go in. But she trusts me to watch the fever and see how it plays out. And I was never given that before. So honestly, now I'm a little less... I still get nervous. I still want to like scream at the top of my lungs and pray that he's not going to be admitted, but I've learned him enough and she's given me enough trust to where I can watch him and see what he does versus automatically put him in the hospital. So that's eased a little bit of the tension. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he pulled these, Hey, I have a line infection and I have barely any symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, I'm still kind of skirting that dance between do I, and and I don't know about you, but I I kind of also, am like, do I reach out to these physicians? I swear I talk to you every other day. You're like my best friend, Mm -hmm. you know? And I feel like, am I, am I overanalyzing this? Am I, so I go back and forth between both. Like some days I'm really calm and comfortable. And then some days he throws me for a loop and I'm like, all right, we're packing. Let's go. Yeah. You know, there's some really amazing power when the doctors give you a little bit more control as a mom mm-hmm. to trust your gut. And they're like, I hear you. I trust you mm-hmm. when all of our trust is put in them. And I am so appreciative. It's like really refreshing to hear that somebody says, I trust you. Just watch this. This is what you look for. And that, that really has given the power back. And I remember one of our first meetings with her when he crashed and she finally took over. Um, she, for the first time in my life, looked at me and said, mom, what do you think? when we were having conversations about changes for him. And that was so refreshing to me to hear a physician say, what do you think? Because I I do, I've seen him, I've watched him, I've, we've raised him, you know? Um, So to have that power and that ability to speak up in his conversations and not just be a listener, but be an active participant is really important, I think. And I think too, to be asked because I'm always an active participant, whether they want it or not. <laughs> but for her to be like, welcome to this conversation. <laughs> like you mm-hmm. are like, because yeah, no, I'm definitely an active participant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and but, I was too, but you know, having that opening where yeah, you feel like you're exactly. not being looked at cross-eyed. The annoying yeah. hover mm-hmm. mom that you knows Pretty everything. Much. And yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. So yes. I feel like kind of rolling off of your job, as, like your role as a mom, and we could probably ask every single guest this, but how do you handle like, like when you think about who am I, like I got dropped in this world of motherhood and this is what I ended up being. Um, I know so many people struggle with like, who am I as a mom? Who am I as a person? You can't change your situation. You're given these three, I'm going to say medically complex, and I know one of them suffers more from sensory processing things, but... Complex children. Complex children, yes. How do you figure out who who am I? Like, And not go to, this is it? You guys can't see Aubrey's face right now, but she just took a deep (laughs) breath, made her eyes huge, and kind of rolled them at us. That has been the biggest thing. So a little background on me. I um, went to school for teaching. Um, I taught for eight years. It was the love of my life. Um, I have loved kids since, you know, I I was a kid. Um, And that was something I had to give up when Jackson got really critically ill. And right before he got put on his central line, um, I actually... I'll never forget. I started a master's program to get my EDS to um, be an administrator in the school system. Um, I found out the day after I got accepted that I was pregnant with Jackson. Um, I, it was a two year program. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I went through, you know, for the nine months, it was a hard pregnancy, but I had these amazing instructors. I got it done. He was in the hospital two weeks old two months old and it just kept happening. And I graduated in December and January of the next month, I had to quit teaching. So 
I always, and I have a ton of teaching friends, you know, and I always go back and forth between what is my purpose because I I'm a mom, but I also on some days, you know, I'll say to my husband too, I'll say, you get to talk to people and go have your job and have a purpose more than just being a mom. And I hate to say that, but yeah. Yeah. And, and I know I have a purpose and I'm, I'm here for my kiddos and I'm taking care of them and I'm using my, I, it's amazing to have that expertise because um, the IEP team likes to, you know, roll their eyes and shun me whenever I show up because I have both sides of it. So um, I go back and forth between my previous experience as a teacher, maybe really helped me learn to be an advocate for my kiddos and, um, you know, work within these realms, but also who am I as, as Aubrey, because I had a big, you know, I, I did my cohort within Hampton city public schools. I was going to become an administrator because they really like to bring up their own people. And I'm seeing all of my friends that were in the cohort become administrators and become teachers and, um, you know, get all these new, these new jobs. And I'm sitting here like, am I, am I doing what I should be? I just let my license expire, which was really hard on me, mm-hmm. but I had to look at myself in reality and say, he needs me now. I have the ability to be there for him. I have the ability to be home. Um, and this is what he needs. This is what they need in the now. And you kind of have to put yourself on the back burner sometimes, you know, and it's easy to become resentful sometimes. Like how do you feel like you make a conscious decision to not be resentful? I try, but I am resentful sometimes. And sometimes you just, sometimes you just cry in a corner, you know, I hate to say it, but you can't, I'm human. I'm not gonna, you know, and I'm not resentful at my babies. I'm resentful at the situation that I'm not able to continue because I did it for years and I realized, but I also have to look back at what I did. And the reason I quit teaching is because I wasn't there for my kids, my, Mm -hmm. my students. And when you can't be there for the students and be the teacher for them that they need, I was out all the time. They had substitute teachers. That's not fair to them either because there's little lives on the line that are relying on me to, to teach them. So, um, you know, I had to make the conscious decision that I'm doing what's best for my kids as well on the other side of the coin, which is a really interesting perspective. But I do look back at that and I say, Aubrey, there's no way 124 days inpatient. There's no way. I could have sustained even teaching up in Cincinnati, say we moved up there and everything was magical. I couldn't do it. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're I really have my identity, but it's skewed. Yeah. <laughs> so. And it's reality, I guess, but you're a really selfless yeah. person. I, it super selfless. I wish I felt that way. Some days you just don't, some days you don't feel selfless because you feel like, why am I feeling this? Like, am I wrong for feeling like, you know, am I wrong for feeling these things or being a human? So am am I wrong for feeling bitter and tired and emotions that I can't even verbalize? Like, you know, and I picked, like I closed my business. I've changed jobs a couple of times so that I'm at a place where I can be with my kids more. And you kind of step back and go like, Huh. Like, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. Like those days that you question though, you don't feel like selfless or valuable. Those are the days that I would encourage. I'm not good at it doing it myself, but to step out and 
try and view yourself the way the world sees you or the way your spouse sees you or the way God sees you. I get this you, you text know? from Diane all the time. I get the text from Diane that says, Aww. I need you to view yourself the way I see you today. <laughs> I'm like, Diane, life is hard today. And she's like, I need you to view yourself the way God sees you. <laughs> but it is, right? Because we didn't so it's, down on ourselves. I know. And, and, I personally spiral in those days where it's like, it's just hard and I don't want to keep going. And, and if you don't step back again, easier said than done. Um, if I don't step back, it just, it doesn't get easier the next day. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you, Aubrey, being in the hospital, like being in a, and I know I keep harping on being in the hospital, but I know that was one theme we kind of wanted to talk about because you've done Mm -hmm. it so much more, but being in the hospital, I always compare it to like being in Vegas. You don't know what time it is. You're in a casino, but it's not a casino. You're like waiting to see the slot machine. Is his numbers going to be good? Or, is, you know, and <laughs> it's dark. It's light. It's there's you're lucky if you have a window in your room. Do you have people coming and going all the time? There are no cocktails, though. So I, strippers are there strippers. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet. I mean, maybe the neighbor. <laughs> I don't know. Um, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I smirked when you said Vegas. Cause I just imagine like no. people throwing like papers at you and strippers walking down the street. Yeah, they do throw papers it's at you. It's more the numbers though. The numbers. Like, like the numbers it's a slot machine. <laughs> so Cincinnati Children's releases their labs. They draw them at 4 a.m. And they release them at 6.02. I kid you not. Every time we're in the hospital, my body will wake up before my chart even alerts me at like 6.01. And I'll watch my phone until it hits that time. And then I'll pull up his labs and I'm like, what kind of mess have you gotten us into today? (laughs) So it's, that's the only concept of time I have. And then the rest of it, you're like, Oh my God, when is it rounds? It's, it's, it's a waiting game and rounds. Oh my gosh. Like, come on, just like, let's get through this. Like come to my room. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) I can tell you're a hospital mom because that was probably, although I heard you talk about, Oh yeah. 120, 28 days. You said, 24. 24. I, think. I lost count. Who's counting? Right. I mean, but it's just very factual. Like, yep, yeah, we do this. We fly up here. We, this is how, you know, so I can tell that the, literally like this is your job. I mean, this, what you guys do and you just kind of expect that it's going to be there again. When I'm hoping when you're inpatient, yeah. for the people who are listening that are either medical moms, but don't do the hospital life or our friends or the people who love us, what would help you? Like, we know it's hard. And to say we know it's hard is an understatement. But what, what would you tell people that can help moms like you? So for us, it was kind of hard. Um, so when we were local, And obviously before COVID, um, having the friends that would reach out and say, Hey, can I do anything for you? But do anything, actually act on that, you know, like, or do it without me asking. I hate to say that because sometimes I just don't have the gumption to, and I've said this to some of my friends, you know, I don't have the gumption to tell you I haven't eaten in 16 hours and I would love for you to bring. Um, and it doesn't even have to be anything like, you know, it doesn't have to be food or anything, but just sending the text because I've seen one of two ways. I've seen the people that pull back and they feel like they're going to bother me if they write me. But honestly, for me coming back and seeing those texts, Hey, I'm thinking about you. Things are going well. I may not write you right away, but having that in my, in my phone or on my email, 
to look back at really makes me feel like I'm not isolated. Mm -hmm. So just reaching out in general. And if you do want to do something for the mom or the person that's in, you know, say, Hey, I'm going to send you, Hey, which one do you want? Instead of me having to, to tell you what I need, Hey, I'm going to send you Uber or DoorDash, which one's better. Hey, I'm going to get you a coffee. Can I come up and see, you know, in, in the, in the previous days, um, one of my best friends, she was always up there. She would find time. She's like, it's lunchtime. I'm coming. Mm-hmm. What do you need? You know? So I feel like actually just reaching out and acting on those, if you want to do something for them, just kind of acting on it and, and not really giving them a choice because I always, I'm not, I don't like asking for help. I don't like reaching out. I've never been that way other than my immediate family, obviously it took everything in me to do the GoFundMe that we did recently, you know? So I personally feel that this is a chronic thing with my kid. Mm -hmm. Do you know where I'm going with this? Like, this is like, I don't want to continue to bother people. I don't want to pretty continue, much like, I mean, this is going to be long term for me with one kid and then with the other. And I just, I'm so grateful for the people who show up, but I also, you know, this is going to happen again in two months for us. We're going to be back inpatient in the next few months. And I don't want people to be like, oh, it's constant with her. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do you feel that way or am I alone with this? No, you're not alone. And I think that's probably what led me not to reach out to start, you know, and when I say not reach out, like I'll give updates and I'll talk to people, but like the age old question, what can I do is so big, especially when you're in the midst of the hospital. Yes. That is a really complex thing to think about. And some people are like, well, don't you know what you need? I'm like, no, you don't understand. My brain is so full right now. Yes. I don't know what I need because I'm kind of in a catatonic state of, of just going through the motions, you know? So, and I do feel sometimes with uh, my repeat offenders, but they're the ones who are always there. You know, Um, I wonder one day, are you just going to be tired of me? And, you know, just, I'm not doing it again, Aubrey. I'm not. No Um, more coffee for you. Mine goes everywhere. Huh? I said no more coffee for you. I don't drink coffee. Surprisingly. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) No more booze then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, those are <laughs> cocktails are good. So, so um, Aubrey, we wrap up every episode with a question. Um, Diane, do you want to ask her the question? I do. I would love to. Aubrey, what gives you hope? That's a loaded question. Um, seeing my baby smile and seeing them still oh you're gonna make me cry I didn't cry the whole episode um seeing them go through this and see their brother go through it and still be such amazing little kids so they give me hope thank you Aubrey thank you for being here thank you for sharing your story we are rooting for we your babies we are we are I always think it's so cool when I know the person on the show and like you don't know them. So what did, what did you think of Aubrey? I feel like each one of our guests brings some thing here and it's really refreshing to just see who are they. And she was just grounded. She was positive. Um, I, 
I don't know. I just loved her. And I don't really know if I have the right words to describe how gentle yet bold she was for her kids. Mm -hmm. And I felt like she was very confident. And selfless. Mm -hmm. Like when she said that she stopped teaching, I mean, for her children, but also for the children in the classroom. She has so much to give those kids in the classroom, but she could see that she wasn't consistently there enough for Mm -hmm. them. And I think that speaks volumes. Volumes. You know, these kids need need a teacher there. And she just couldn't physically and probably, I'm sure, some days mentally be there. Absolutely. So I'm very grateful for her. And Aubrey, every guest on this show, we're rooting for all of you. But today, I just feel like I have to say like, Woman, you are facing you are facing a lot of time in the hospital and a lot of ups and downs, and we we are absolutely rooting for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This is Susan, and I am going to go refill my my little water cup because I'm trying really hard to continue drinking water throughout the day. <laughs> and this is Diane, and I have to go switch over laundry. I just remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things to get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.